everyone. <laughs> How many of you are awake? Raise your hand. Good. Your good morning didn't sound like you're awake. I get the privilege of introducing Steve Hamm this morning, and Steve, as many of you know, serves as the Senior Director of Outreach for Answers in Genesis. He oversees all of their conferences and speaking ministries, including AIG's International Division Answers Worldwide, which involves speaking tours uh, all around the world um, and the translation of ministry materials into 75, approximately, different languages, over 75. If you've never met anyone who can speak 75 languages, you want to talk to Steve and have him give it his, no, have him give it his best shot. Steve has authored various, uh, authored various ministry materials, including articles, books, um, curriculum, um, there's some excellent homeschool science curriculum, by the way, through Answers in Genesis that we've used. It's great. Uh, some of the other published materials are, for instance, the book, In God We Trust, Why Biblical Authority Matters to Every Believer, and also Raising Godly Children in an Ungodly World, co-authored with his brother, Ken. I actually met Steve about three years ago. We were both on a plane headed to Moscow. We had both been working with Slavic Gospel Association, ministering to the brothers over in the former Soviet Union, teaching. He would teach on creation, and I go to teach on biblical counseling. And uh, I had never met Steve before, but Eric Mock pointed him out to me. So I went to kind of the rear of the economy class section where we both had seats, and I approached him and uh, saw him reading something. And I thought, surely it must be one of the latest articles on the origins debate. And I got looking over his shoulder and realized that wasn't it at all. At all. He was actually reading an unpublished essay by Jonathan Edwards on the Trinity. And we got into a great discussion on the Trinity, and it only took a few minutes to realize for Steve Hamm, his greatest passion is not apologetics, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that alone can save. And because Steve loves Christ, he's passionate about the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God, which is our passion as well. And that's what Answers in Genesis is about. And I, I think the message of AIG is one that every church needs to hear because we are rapidly in the church losing the sufficiency and the authority of the Word of God. And that shouldn't be. This should be the book that we love more than anything else. It should be the guiding principle of our lives. Every word of it is true. And we should cherish it and live it and obey it to the glory of Christ. I know you're going to be blessed and challenged, not only in this next hour, but through the rest of this weekend, and I hope you'll be able to be here for the rest of our uh, times together, but I don't want to delay that any further. And so, Steve, would you come? Well, thank you so much, and uh, I just want to say what a privilege it is for Dr. Mortensen and myself to be here this evening. If you, how many of you were in this last session with Dr. Mortensen? Okay, there were quite a few of you. Was that not a good session? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And so um, please make sure you don't uh, miss coming and hearing him again this evening uh, and putting up with me as well. I am speaking first this evening on the image of God. That is at 6 p.m. And we're going to talk about the him, the, being created in the image of God and impacting human ethics. And, and it's very, very important. So please come, hear that message, and then second, you'll hear Dr. Mortensen speak on uh, ape men, uh, Adam and the Gospel. And I know that uh, many of you do not uh, believe in ape men, but uh, I also know that many of you uh, 
don't really necessarily know how to answer the questions of our time about evolution and amen. And he has some incredible, uh, incredible truths to share with you and, uh, and teach you this evening that I think you'll really enjoy. And don't forget, we are here to resource people as well. We have some wonderful materials that are there for your use. We're going to get into talking about the relevance of Genesis. And I hope you can also put up with this accent for the next... I never had, a, had an accent until I moved to America, you know that? And... Um, <laughs> So, yeah, all of you have got accents. And, and uh, so, it, by the way, if you want to speak like this, just wait until you get to heaven. You'll all speak like this. It's, it's, uh... <clears throat> We're going to talk about the relevance of Genesis. And I'm going to get right into it this morning. And, and we, we want to uh, talk about why is this book relevant? What is it ab about this, uh, this book that is, that is so important for Christians today? Uh, why is it so closely associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why, why do we... Uh, need to understand things about Genesis so that we can, uh, we can be more uh, confident about going out and teaching the gospel of Christ and, and being a witness. And so let me just start by ha making an observance about the culture in which we live. I mean, we live in the world, but we're not of it, but we are living in it, and we're living in this world, in this particular place called America, and there's particular aspects happening in the culture, uh, by which is a good thing to understand the culture we're living in, how it's influencing us, how we are to influence uh, others in the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might come to know Christ as their saviour. Uh, and that is our goal to the glory of God, uh, is to go out with the Great Commission. But we do need to know something about our culture. Whenever I go out to different cultures, I read a book called Operation World. And in Operation World, if you, if you want to ever pray for other nations, this is a great book for you to get because it gives you statistical analysis of what's happening in those nations, gives you some dialogue about... Uh, what's happening with the Christian witness there and allows you to uh, pray effectively for the missionaries in different countries and uh, for the witness of Christ in those countries. Uh, this is what Operation World has to say about America. And it, it gives us a number of statistics. Some of the ones that I had a look at was those who are willing to take the name Christian. Uh, it's about stagnant. It's not an increasing thing in this country. And uh, when I mean those who are willing to take the name Christian, I'm not talking uh, about those who are actually regenerate believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're willing to just accept the name. You know, we're, we're Christians. It's our family-designated religion or, or whatever. Uh, for most people, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but there is something that uh, we are seeing statistically is that uh, behind that, the, the, most increase, the, the highest increase where we're seeing uh, in religious um, designation is those who are wanting to call themselves non-religious, atheists, agnostics, humanists. And uh, that's increasing by th about 3.5% a year. And so that's a statement, by the way, when you're saying, I don't want to take any religion. You're making a statement about where you, where you stand, for, you're saying that for your family. Now, I want you to, uh, what I do normally when I go around the world is I, I read a little bit of dialogue from Operation World and ask people if they think it's correct or not. So I'm going to do that here. Uh, because I normally find that they, they have some good insight and they've got some good information from people in local countries. This is what they have to say about America. The spiritual, the spiritual heritage of the USA is being attacked by an unholy alliance of humanist, atheistic, new age and homosexual agendas. They exploit their influence in the media to disparage Christians and dismantle all they can of anything Christian in public life. They exploit constitutionally provided free speech while denying the same right to the Christian viewpoint. Freedom of religion is becoming freedom from religion. The concept of tolerance is abused to silence truth and promote anti-Christian values, and it goes on. Do you think it basically has a good understanding of what's happening in the United States of America? Yeah, lots of nodding of heads there. You do, and I do see that as well. 
there's influence all around us and this is part of the influence, this influence that's coming through the media and sometimes uh, the influence against God's truth is very subtle, sometimes it's very blatant, very subtle. Sometimes you just watch a, a program, they won't say in this program that there is no God or don't believe in God but you'll hear something like this. Uh, in the beginning, nothing became something and went bang. And then billions of years later, somehow stars formed and then somehow uh, the earth was a hot molten blob uh, billions of years later. Then somehow water formed on the earth about 3.8 billion years ago. And then somehow from non-life, life sprang into existence. And then somehow that life developed new information and functionality to become another form of life, a whole other kind of life. And this happened in a progressive way over millions and millions of years until you get it to ape-like creatures and then eventually human beings. That statement, basically, which comes across every, you know, the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet and in sitcoms and in movies and on the internet and everywhere else, is basically saying you cannot believe the Bible. That's what it basically is saying. Now, that's, it does it in a subtle way. And it's in our government education systems. It's the primary humanistic philosophy that is being taught in schools to children. And then there's the really blatant way. There's you driving down the road, your kids are looking out the back seat of the car window and they're seeing this sign. Don't believe in God? You're not alone. And that's, that's atheistic evangelism, by the way. That's a new atheism. That we're seeing that everywhere. And they've got a story to tell. They want to tell people that you don't believe in God. And then, in fact, um, you know, ideas have consequences, folks, and we've got to understand, listen to the dogma that they're, they're telling people not to believe in God, but listen to where they're, what they're asking people to put their lives into. That there is no God, that you're just a, chance, you're just a process, or you're just a, a, a result of random chance processes, that when you die, there is nothing, and there is no hope in this world. That's really promising. Why bother, right? Okay, so ideas have consequences, but here's the thing. We've got all of this pressure coming in. How are we answering it? Because we want to go out into this community. We want to go out into this uh, nation that we live in. We want to go, and all over the world, not just this nation, we want to go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got a different message, don't we? In fact, we have a Bible that tells us that God created all that there is, that we sinned against him as a result of sinning against him. We're under the condemnation of, of, of God because he is righteous. He is a righteous and holy and perfect judge. And, and he, he is the creator. We sinned against our creator. Therefore, there are consequences to that. But our creator became our saviour. He came into this world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sin, taking upon sin on himself. He became sin, him who knew no sin. And, and he died so that uh, he, he was buried. Three days, raised again to new life. That... that all who believe in him, who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, can find salvation in our, in our conquering king who conquered death and sin for all of us. There's a, there is an amazing, amazing message. You know, you see it depicted in so many different verses all over the, all over the Bible. In this one, for instance, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But folks, this has never been an easy-to-believe message. In fact, you think about it. Well, you need to believe, to believe this message. We're going out into the world that's got this new aggression. Well, 
it's got an extra aggression or an increasing aggression, however you want to say it, but we're living in a world where there's an increasing aggression against the Bible, against the gospel, and we're going out and telling people to believe in this gospel. We're telling people that they're sinful, right? Now, just do this. Go up to somebody, some stranger on the street, go up to them and say, hello, excuse me, sir, you're evil. It's not going to work, is it? It's not going to go down real well. People don't really want to hear who they truly are. This is not about easy believism. Uh, That God, the creator, became man. He became a human being. That's mind-blowing. That he died on a cross for sins he didn't commit, that's mind-blowing. That uh, the gospel is about self-denial and repentance, that we deny ourselves, take up the cross of Christ, that we repent and believe. Hang on, what do you mean I've got to deny myself? What do you mean I've got to repent? It's all about me. Life is all about me. Isn't that the world we live in? And that there is no other way to salvation, that the only way to, to the Father is through the Son, right? Jesus Christ. There's no other way. You arrogant people to say that you have the only way. And that, that is what we, we see in our society, isn't it? If there is only one way, that's a form of arrogance. You've got to be tolerant of all views, which means you don't just tolerate all views, you actually accept them, which you can't, because you can't accept contradictory views. It's illogical anyway. But, you know, this, this whole gospel is not about easy believism. You get that? To say that there's only one way to salvation, you know? That's incredible. See, what the world is saying is you can't believe this gospel. This gospel that is already hard to believe, you can't believe it. And here's the reason you can't believe it. And then they start attacking it and showing all sorts of areas of doubt where you've got to doubt the word of God. Because this gospel, where do we get it? It's in the word of God. So you attack the word of God, right? Paul was dealing with a similar thing in in Corinth. I just want to quickly show you in 2 Corinthians... Uh, we read this, but I fear lest, ha- lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplic- from the simplicity that is in Christ. And what Paul was, was doing there was, uh, at that time, context is, he's got these guys walking around in, in, in Corinth, he's writing to the Corinthians, trying to, trying to get them to stay strong in the face of incredible opposition. The super apostles were walking around, just read through Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, and, you know, they've got the, the academic credentials of the time. They've got the letters of credit. They've got, they're, they're uh, commanding, you know, people's money to even hear them speak. They've got the rhetoric. They've got the consensus. They're walking around and they're, they're taking people away. They're taking people away from the simple truth that is in Christ. They're preaching a gospel that's not a gospel. And, and Paul is saying, watch out. They might sound amazing they might sound like their rhetoric is really great. They might sound like they've got the most prestigious letters of credentials, but um, at the end of the day, if you believe this, they're going to take you away from that simple truth, that simple saving truth, because the saving truth is a simple truth. You don't have to be a simpleton to believe it, right? Even though it's a simple truth, it's also a rich truth, isn't it? That we could dig to the, to the re- for the rest of our lifetime into the simple truth of salvation in Jesus Christ and never reach the depth of its riches. But, but it's yet a simple truth. The truth of the gospel is accessible to all humans. It's just wonderful. And so Paul is saying, watch out. And they're saying that the, the doubt that he's talking about here and the doubt that, that is in Corinth is, he, he uses as an example, he says, uh, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I want to go back to that. See, he's, he's dealing with what happened in the Garden of Eden. And here's the context. God created 
uh, in six days, rested on the seventh, he said everything was very good. He's a perfect, a perfect, absolutely pure and holy God called his creation very good. I'm thinking very good there is a reflection of his perfect and holy, pure character. And yes, it is very good. Uh, so God calls his creation very good and he gives Adam on day six a command. He says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now it's in this context that we go to Genesis 3. And this is what Paul is referring to as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which God, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, Did God really say, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. So what we in, in Answers in Genesis, by the way, call the Genesis 3 attack. I know they misquoted God, but look at the tactic. Did God really say? Right? Did God really say? It's to doubt the word of God. And this is what Paul is, Paul is referring to, this, this doubt-creating questions. Now, in this case, he's, he's talking about that, uh, that uh, beginning question to doubt the word in God. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of, uh, of the tree in the garden? But here, we have seen so many questions. Did, you, did God really say questions uh, around the world in relation to the doubting the word of God? I mean, Satan's tactic hasn't really ever changed, has it? You know, did God really say he was born of a virgin? Did God really say that he rose from the dead? Did God really say that, the, uh, that he created in six days? Did God really say that there was a global catastrophic flood? Did God really say that he confused the languages at Babel? Did God really say that all of the death, suffering, disease and bloodshed in the world is a cause of, of mankind's sin? Did God really say? We, we have those doubting questions. And those doubting questions are saying, you can't believe the word of God. In fact, we've seen so many of those questions mainly focused on the first chapters of Genesis. And a lot of people say, well, that's Genesis. That's not Jesus. And we've got to deal with that because I believe it is Jesus. I believe people, once you, where do you get the message of Jesus? From the Bible? At what point does it become truth? At what point does it become reliable? At what point does it become credible? After, after we find oh, we don't want to believe the first chapter or the second chapter but we'll start believing the third chapter we might start believing more of the fourth chapter folks at what point are we determining that god's truth is god's truth and and satan is saying what it, satan is saying you can't believe god's word from the very first verse jesus dealt with doubt too by the way um when he's talking with nicodemus and nicodemus is a jew he's a pharisee he's there and he's talking about he's in the system of the roman empire's oppression right and uh nicodemus is is talking with jesus and um and he's saying we've seen you do all of these in incredible things and jesus uh jesus basically is telling nicodemus you know nicodemus uh I don't know what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for me to come and, and uh, win over the Roman Empire, whatever. That's not the answer to all your problems. The answer to your problem is regeneration. You have to have a new birth. You have to be born again, right? That's the answer to the world's problems. And so, so Jesus is telling him these things. It's a, it's a spiritual concept that he can't get in, get in his head. How, how does that happen? I mean, how can a person crawl you know, back into his mother's womb. It can't, it can't happen. And Jesus says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, this is a spiritual concept being born again. How will you believe the heavenly things if you don't believe the earthly things? In other words, he's already seen Jesus in front of him. He's, he's seen 
you know, Jesus physically in front of him. He knows his testimony. He knows what he's done. He knows his words. He, he, he's, he's heard these amazing things about Jesus. If you can't believe the authenticity of who I am standing right here in front of you physically, the, the things you can see and touch, how are you going to believe the, the, the spiritual part of my message, the aspect of what rebirth really is, the aspect of the fact that I have come and I'm going to die and rise again, to, that if you have faith in me, you can have eternal life, that I'm going to come back and judge the living and the dead, all of these spiritual issues which are reality issues, right? How are you going to believe those if you can't believe the physical, earthly things you see in me right here in front of you in the authenticity in who I am? And in this way, Answers in Genesis is dealing with doubt in a similar way to what Jesus was dealing with doubt about himself. And if you ever have anything to do with Answers in Genesis or come to the Creation Museum, by the way, how many people have been to the Creation Museum? There's a few. The rest of you need to repent and come. Okay? Um, it's... it's no, I don't know what the drive is. Pastor Dan, what's the drive? Uh, 14 hours, what's that? Okay, hop in your car, it's a few meals away. And, uh, <laughs> and come, it's great, I'm going to show you, come tonight, I'll show you a video of it, okay? So you'll see how, why you really need to come and, and how, how good it really is. But if you walk around the museum and you have anything to do with answers in Genesis, you're going to find very quickly that we talk about the seven seas of history. And we do it in a way to show the earthly and the, the, the spiritual things uh, in relation to, to the Bible. And those seven C's are creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross and consummation. And we're going to have a test at the end. You need to be able to say it like that. Okay? Uh, the reason we have these seven C's is just to be helpful. The first four C's depict the first 11 chapters of Genesis, at which really show us something about the physical world in which we live in. And... Uh, because we can see the reliability of the history, right, the real, literal history that is in the Word of God, we can see the reliability in the spiritual message and the authenticity of who Jesus is, that he is, he is the Messiah, he, did, he is God who became man, he did die on a cross for our sins and rise from the dead, and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Okay? So, so we got those physical things historical things pointing to the reality of the spiritual message. And if the his history is right, we see and have much, and we have confidence and we know that, hey, we should expect the history to be right and the spiritual reality to be right. But if we can't believe the history, how can we believe the spiritual reality? And, and what is that history? You know, we see matter around about us, right? And, and we're part of it. And so there's either self-existent eternal matter or there's a self-existent eternal God and the Bible says, in the beginning, God, right? So you have that first C, creation. He, cre he created all that there is. Corruption, that uh, there is, um, stuff has gone wrong around the world, hasn't it? We see it all around the world. And we see that there's, there's problems. There's death, suffering, disease, bloodshed. People die. We lose loved ones. We go through hardships. Um, but we have a history in Genesis chapter 3 that tells us that mankind's sin brought uh, devastation to the world. God cursed the very ground as a result of mankind's sin. Death came into the world as a result of mankind's sin. There's all this problem as a result of mankind's sin. All around the world we see, physically see, these, um, these, this fossil record and rock layers all around the world, which much of it is testimony uh, and a great testament to the, the, the history in Genesis 6 to 8 of a global catastrophic flood. 
we see people all around the world in different people groups. And we see one, one people group, they have similar characteristics within that people group, but different characteristics to another people group. And we see in Genesis chapters 9 to 11 a history that tells us uh, that uh, at, at Babel, at a place called Babel, they built a great big tower to their own human pride as a result of that. God judged mankind's sin yet again by confusing languages, set people out into their own language, into different language groups. As a result of people going to their, to, to their language group, it isolated gene pools as they spread across the world. As, as those isolated gene pools spread, common characteristics of one gene pool came out differently to the common characteristics that were in another gene pool and we have different people groups all around the world one race different people groups only one race though the human race no such thing as races you see but we see this in the bible we see in the bible um, this incredible history that helps us to understand the world. There's those first four C's in Genesis 11. If we can understand those first four C's are right. We have a history in God's word that is actually true and makes sense of the world. Guess what we can then do? We can say, you know what? I have a much greater confidence in everything that I read in the Bible. As soon as, when I know the history is true, I know everything is true. When I, I, can, I have confidence, I should expect to see that this is God's word that is true because he says he has given it to us. It's his revelation to us, right? So it's, it's, it's wonderful. We get confidence. We get, um, we get to see the incredible reliability and credibility of God's word. It has a reliable and credible history and a reliable and credible spiritual truth. It's not just in relation to the believability of things, though, okay, as to why I think it's important that we go back and we're able to defend the attacks against Genesis. It's also because Genesis is actually the historical foundation that gives us understanding for the rest of Christian doctrine. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that. Let me do it by an example, okay? Let's take a doctrine, a Christian doctrine. It is a Christian doctrine, the doctrine of marriage. You, you know that, right? So let's take the Christian doctrine of marriage. You see... Jesus was asked by the Pharisees in the context of asking about marriage and divorce. He was asked about marriage and Jesus answered them and he says to them this in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. He says, he answered them, have you not read? Let me just stop there for a moment because the Pharisees already had scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, right? So Jesus is saying, I'm not about to reveal to you anything new. Whenever we get confused, it's like we're walking around looking for a new revelation. We get this question we can't answer. Whoa, I need a new revelation. Folks, we don't need a new revelation. We've already got God's revelation. We just need to open the pages of Scripture and read it. Okay? And so he's saying the same thing to the Pharisees. It's really an indictment. You have, you've got Scriptures. You can answer this question. Go back and read it. In fact, here's where the answer it is. And, and he says that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hmm. Where is Jesus quoting from? Genesis. Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, actually. You see, what Jesus is saying here is if you want to understand Genesis, right, you need to go to the... Hist you want to understand marriage, you need to go to its historical foundation. You need to find out what marriage is by definition through the one who defined it in the first place, the one who created it. We don't define truth by what we want to read into it. We define truth by how it was originally given. And it was given to us by God. He is the creator, right? And so Jesus said, you want to understand marriage? You've got to go back to where it was originally created. And it was originally created here. Here's what God says to us about marriage being one man for one woman. 
and managed to leave and cleave and come with his wife in one flesh union of marriage forever. That's it. That's marriage. It doesn't matter what other definitions are. If another definition is different to this definition, it's a redefinition because it's not the creator who gave the definition. Okay? It doesn't matter. Supreme Court, Mayor of Houston, it doesn't matter. This is it. So if we want to understand marriage, we have to understand, really, the foundation for marriage, which is the foundational history that is in Genesis. Um, but I want to put it to you that all Christian doctrine has its historical foundation for understanding in Genesis. Um, what about sin? Where, how do we understand sin? Genesis. Why is there death in the world? Genesis. Why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? Genesis. Why are you wearing clothes? Thank you for wearing clothes. <laughs> Why are you wearing clothes? It's actually not... I mean, it gets pretty hot in Texas, right? Yeah? So, you know, but in Kentucky it can get pretty cold, but we go to a nice warm shopping mall and walk around, and I tell you what, if we see somebody in their birthday suit, we know some, something's wrong, right? We, we, we're wearing clothes because clothes are given to us, Genesis 3, in relation to uh, a, our, our nakedness is a depiction of the shame of our sin that we're covering up, clothes. Jesus covers our shame of sin in the most perfect righteous way by imputing his righteousness to us through dying on the cross and rising again and our faith in him. It's, it's, it's a really, really important concept to get. You see, we understand all these things. The seven-day week, why do you have a seven-day week? Exodus 20.11, and, and when you read Exodus 20.11, be careful to read Exodus 20.11 and go and have a look at Genesis 1.1 because the words in Exodus 20.11 and the words in Genesis 1.1 are almost exactly the same when they start. It, 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 Genesis, Exodus 20.11 is a whole depiction of the first chapter of, of Genesis. It doesn't give you any room for you know, putting a gap anywhere or, or anything like this. In Exodus 20.11, uh, uh, in, in the law that's given to the Jews about the Sabbath day, he says, keep the Sabbath holy, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and rested on the seventh. So, hey, you need to work for six days and rest on, work for six literal days and rest on one day, not work for six lots of millions of years and then get to rest after a certain amount of millions of years, right? You rest, you work for six little days, you rest on one day, and the reason you do that is because this is what God did in the creation week. You see, um, as we go through and we understand these things, we understand Genesis, the importance of Genesis and foundational history. And let me give one more to you, the gospel. Because the gospel is pretty important, I kind of think it is, right? But the gospel is good news, so when my daughter comes to me and she says to me, Dad, I've got an exam, that's just news. But when my daughter comes to me, she's at college doing nursing, and she says, I just passed my exam, that's good news, right? That's not just news, that's good news. Why is that good news? Because I have a certain amount of relief. Why do I have relief? I have relief because I know what the bad news could be. Okay, you understand the good news of the gospel because you understand the bad news you understand the relief of the gospel because you understand the bad news. And you understand the bad news in what book? Genesis, right? See, this is really, really important stuff. We, we see this 
as incredibly important. Now, people will say to us, okay, you're hooking everything to Genesis, you're hooking the gospel to Genesis, every Christian doctrine to Genesis, and because you've gone to the gospel, um, I'm going to suggest now that what you're trying to say is if you don't start at Genesis and you don't believe what you believe in Genesis, then you're not believing the gospel, you can't be saved. Are we really saying that? Are we, are we saying that if you don't believe in a young earth and six literal days, you can't be saved? Well, what does the Bible say? What's the gospel? Well, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, period. See, we're not saying anything other than that. And so I want to really make this very, very important to you. you. Please don't hear us saying anything else. Salvation is conditional upon your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. And so... Does that mean then that Genesis is not important? No, no. For the understanding, for, you really need that historical understanding to really get the, the grips of why we need a saviour in the first place, don't we? We really do need that historical understanding. It's important. It's still important. It's not salvific. It's not essential for salvation, but it is important. And, and let me put it to you this way as to why it's important. If you're a regenerate believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, that means that you believe that God, that, that Jesus rose from the dead, that God raised his, his son from the dead, that you believe in the resurrection. True? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I believe you. All right, this actually is a central tenet of salvation. This is a really, really important aspect essential for salvation the resurrection so i'm going to go ahead and ask that question again Uh, if you're a regenerate believer in the lord jesus christ here this morning that means you believe that jesus rose bodily from the grave is that true amen yes jesus is alive right without that we have no salvation read first corinthians 15 well, what do you do with this see the secularists and the secular science community will come to you and say hang on you can't repeat and test this in a laboratory this is not empirically provable you can't um, observe test and, and repeat uh, the virgin birth water and turning water into wine walking on water calming a storm raising the dead or jesus resurrection any miracles we're not going to believe in in anything supernatural we're not going to to believe in any of those things miracles because you can't empirically test these things so therefore it can't be true and what do we see when that happens quite often we see um we see the church the evangelical conservative church doing pretty well in this area they're saying hang on we're going to use all of the internal evidence in in god's word and then we're going to use any of the external evidence and we're going to show the truth of scripture and we're going to we're going to uh actually stand on the authority of the word of god because this is an authority issue we're going to stand on the authority of the word of god and defend the resurrection of jesus christ great good do it because it's really really important but here's what i want to ask you what do we do when somebody says um, that somebody asks the same question, exactly the same question, you can't observe, repeat, and test this issue, okay? So they ask exactly the same question, and they're talking about exactly the same book, but except they're now not looking at the first four Gospels, now they're looking at the first chapter of this book. What do we do? when same question, same book, just a different area of the book, okay? And we're still talking about history, real history. Jesus walked among us in real history, okay? Rose in real history. And God created real history. We're still talking about history. 
So, so a question about history in one area of the book, same question in another area of the book, wouldn't you think we should answer the same way? But often we don't see that to be the case. Often we see people saying, yeah, you know what? These people, they're, they're walking around, they've got these PhDs, they're from distinguished universities they, of our day, the institutions of our day, and they've, they've got all of the, all of the learning and, they, and they're telling us that these rock layers are millions and millions of years old and there's a progression of life through them and, and all of these things. So, so I don't know, I'm confused, I don't know how to answer those questions. They seem to know and there's a great consensus of them and, they've, and, and they command you know, all the attention. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what they say somehow get their clear word and try to put it into the first chapters of Genesis here. Um, in fact, I have to do that. I have to rearrange genre. I have to rearrange definitions of words and phrases and all of those sorts of things to insert that in. Basically, what we're doing is we're going to say, I'm going to take the obscure word of, uh, the clear word of man to understand the obscure word of God. But folks, I take the clear word of God to understand the obscure word of man. And I'm not intimidated by what university they went to. Because God is greater than all. And he knows. And they weren't there. And he was. Right? You see, people are really asking, can the Bible be trusted in this scientific age? And we've got to be able to answer these questions without intimidation. And the, and the world is coming and they're saying, you can't believe the Bible. What about evolution? What about millions of years? What about age dating methods? What about um, dinosaurs? What about archaeology disproves the Bible? The Bible's history is not true. There's no global flood. Radiometric dating, um, in global warming, whatever else they use to say uh, the Bible's history is not true. Is it good enough that we should just say, well, don't worry about those attacks against the Bible. Just trust in Jesus. And you know what? I just want to, make a, I want to put a caveat out there. This is a big disclaimer, the biggest disclaimer I ever give when I'm ever giving any talk ever. And that is, I hate that slide. I hate it. I hate what it looks like. I hate, I hate the depiction. I show it because it's important. But my three favourite words in the world to ever say is trust in Jesus. But I'm not going to say it like that. I'm not going to say trust in Jesus without defining who he is as if he's some uh, undefined nebulous Jesus and I'm not going to say trust in Jesus while you let the rest of his word be attacked. And the Bible tells us who Jesus is, right? If you read through those Christological passages, I'm going to get the definition of Jesus from Jesus. So I read through those Christological passages and I read that you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and the word created, the word is the light and the life, the word... Um, you know, these wonderful statements about Jesus, that um, uh, Jesus, in very nature God, did not grasp onto his place on the throne, but he came in the nature of a servant, becoming nothing, born as a man, an appearance as a man, he, he was obedient to death on the cross. Uh, Jesus, the express image of the Father, the firstborn of all creation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. You could go on and on and on looking at all of these wonderful Christological passages, snippets that I've just you know, brought out there, but here's what you can say about Jesus when you, when you really do look at those wonderful Christological passages. You can say that Jesus is the self-existent eternal God, second in the Trinity, Son of God, creator of all that there is and revealer of all truth as he walked among us and in his word from the first verse in Genesis all the way through to the last verse in Revelation. That's Jesus. Trust in Jesus. I can say it now. When somebody says it to me like this, I often go to them and I say, can you please define Jesus for me? I just want to talk about who he is for a sec. 
You see, we need to be able to defend against these attacks because when you attack the Word of God in Genesis, you are attacking... Let me... This is going to be hard for some people to hear who may not necessarily agree with me in some of these areas, but, but I really need to say it. When you attack the Word of God in Genesis, you are attacking Jesus because it is His Word. So we need to defend it. We need to show people confidence in the Word of God in Jesus in his word, from first verse in Genesis. Where should we be learning the answers to all of these questions? Well, hopefully church, right? But I remember learning about some of these things, uh, some, of the, some of the history that is in the word of God in Sunday school, and there was something that was unhelpful to me, and I just want to bring this out so that you can, you can see it too. And that is, remember learning the Sunday school, I don't know, you, you were all from different churches when you grew up, and and I'm praising God, you've ended in this one, a good, doctrinally sound, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. Uh, but, you know, we all learn those, those Bible stories in Sunday school, like David and Goliath and, uh, and Moses and dividing the sea and, and, uh, and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the great fire and Jonah and the great fish. You know those ones I'm talking about, right? And often when they're depicted... They're not necessarily depicted as story in relation to a narrative of history, but they're depicted as story in relation to what sort of thing? Fairy tale? I mean, they're not meaning to, but it's the way that it just ends up being depicted, right? As like Bible stories. You can be sure that when our kids are going to government schools and they're learning about history and they're relating it to the geology, biology, astronom astronomical, anthropological, archaeological history of this world, that they're being taught to defend it as real history and they're not taught as like a, as, as like a fairy story. As if, you know, I, sometimes I wonder whether our kids and hearing some of these Bible stories are equating Jesus with Winnie the Pooh, right? We've got to be careful uh, about that. And I want to give you, because we need to help our children and help the next generation understand that this, this um, history in Genesis 1 to 11 is real history that relates to the real physical world that we see all around about us. But what if somebody comes up to one of these kids or us and, and says, hey, you know, uh, how did Noah get all of the 10 billion species, two of every 10 billion species of animal onto the ark. And you go, well, actually, let me think about what I learned in, uh, in, in Sunday school or somewhere else. By the way, I'm not trying to have a dig at Sunday school. I'm just asking us to do it right, okay? I'm just asking us. Let's, let's consider about doing it right. Let's consider parents at, at home even, right? Let's, let's not present the Bible as fairy tales. Let's present it as the real history because it is. And so, you know, do we think, okay, well, what was that picture? What was on the nursery wall about the ark when I was, was learning about it? And it was something like that. It doesn't answer the question, right? But what if that person could say, hang on, uh, when I add up all of the cubits, the height and the width and the length in, in the account of the ark and the flood in Genesis 6 to 8, I realise that in today's term, the ark was about a football field and a half long and four storeys high with three levels. And it was a really, really big boat. And by the way, Noah didn't have to take 10 billion, two of every 10 billion species of animal onto the ark. He only had to take two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal and seven of some. That means he didn't need to take all of the species of dogs onto the ark. He only needed to take two of the dog kind with all the genetic variability within it to come out and see all of the speciation of dog that has bred since that time. And we see all the variations of dogs 
in that speciation that we have today, but only two of the dog kind with all the genetic variability needed to go onto the, onto the ark. Two of the dog kind, two of the cat kind, two of the giraffe kind, I could go on and on. But actually, if you do a study of the extinct and the extant kinds and you look at uh, interbreeding and, and, and find out uh, what are actual kinds, our scientists believe that there's around about a thousand kinds that needed to actually go onto the ark. Multiplied by two, seven of some, just give a little bit of a buffer for, you know, where we might get it a little bit wrong in, as far as not understanding um, that one might have been two kinds or something like that. So, so you know, just say two and a half thousand uh, animals go on to uh, a boat. And uh, we know from the fossil record, the average size of the animal, even the average size of the dinosaurs were about the size of a sheep or a German shepherd uh, dog. So two and a half thousand animals, about the size of a sheep, going on to an ark that is a football field and a half long and four stories high with three levels, and you do the math and there's plenty of room. Guess what? That's only one issue among hundreds, but I just want to tell you something. The Bible's history is scientifically credible. It really is. You can trust the history in the Word of God. The history of real people that are aligned to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. I mean, wow. And I hope, I hope you get excited. I mean, are you not excited about that? I hope you get excited about that because we have the truth, folks. You are not caged in this box of... of this, this prison of lies, you have been given the freedom of the truth in Jesus Christ. And that's why when we look at things like the Grand Canyon, we know what it is. I know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at uh, what is left over from the devastation of flood. And if there really was a worldwide catastrophic flood, what should I see? I should see billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. And by the way, that's actually what I kind of see. So in this last section as we go through, so I, I just wanted to put a case to you, you know, that, that, the, that Genesis is important, that we do need to be able to uphold it, we do need to be able to defend, we do need to be able to answer the sceptical questions of our day in relation to Genesis because they are attacking the book that tells us about Jesus that we want our kids to know about. We want our kids to know about the gospel parents and so we need to be able to help them to answer these questions. That's why we're here. That's why we've brought resources there with us in the other room. Please avail yourself with whatever you need to be able to answer these questions of our time so that you can point solidly, confidently to the gospel of Jesus Christ saying it's based in real truth true, defendable, reliable history. And now I want to put one more case to you. And the other case that I want to put to you is about the age of the earth. So answers in Genesis, I mean, you know, everybody thinks we're kooky in the world because we actually believe that this world is around about 6,000 years old. Okay? And it's not just answers in Genesis. It should be every Christian. It should be everybody who believes the Bible because you add up the genealogies in the Bible. It's about 4,000 years between Jesus and Adam. It's 2,000 years between Jesus and us. That's 6,000 years. Then you add on another five days because Adam was created on day six, right? And so, so it's around about 6,000 years. Um, so, you know, you say that to somebody and they'll instantly go, you're kooky uh, because that's not what the world believes. And so 
some people will say, I get what you're saying about the importance of Genesis. I get what you're saying about it being the foundational history for understanding Christian doctrine to give coherency. I get what you're saying about the believability of the history in the Bible in relation to the believability of all of the other messages. I understand all of that. But I want to say one more thing. And, and uh, why do you have to worry about the age of the earth so much? Why is that a big issue? And so I just want to join it. I just want to show you why we do believe that the age of the earth is an issue. And I want you to, I want you to hear me out for a moment as I, as I put a case to you. And that is this. Most of the people have a problem with the age of the earth because when, they, when they're talking about the age of the earth, they, they see, uh, see it as you know, the, the, the secular science consensus are, are telling us that those rocks, it's mainly because of the rocks. You open any book, even, even the Christian scholars who believe in old earth, right? You open any of their books and you soon get to talking about rocks when it comes to the age of the earth. They're talking about the fossil record or something like that. They, they end, up, end up there every time, okay? It's the issue. And so, you know, people are saying that, that uh, the, the, the dating methods of these rocks, and by the way, the dating methods have presuppositions built into them before they even start using them. We've got more materials helping you understand that as well. But they're saying the dating methods of these rocks, these rocks are millions and millions of years old. Now, here's the issue. Our... Our harshest evolutionary critics also agree that modern mankind wasn't around millions and millions of years ago. Okay? So if you want to put millions of years into the Bible anywhere, you have to put it before Adam and Eve come on the scene. So that's where you have to put those rock layers before Adam and Eve comes on the scene. But there's a problem with that because if you put those rock layers before Adam and Eve comes on the scene, you have to put what is in those rock layers before Adam and Eve comes on the scene. And what's in it? A fossil record. What is, what's in that fossil record? Well, dead things, right? Dead animals. And, and uh, in those dead things, we see evidence of brain tumors, cancer, and arthritis. But hang on, if that's come before Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were on the sixth day, and it wasn't until after the sixth day that God said everything was very good. What did God mean when he said very good? Wasn't the creation a reflection of his character, who is a holy, righteous, and pure character? Wouldn't you expect that? I don't see that as a reflection of God's character. And, and there are... Evidence, fossil evidence of bones of animals with bite marks in them, bones of animals with other animal bones in them, bones of animals that were in the process of eating other animals when they were buried. But in Genesis 1, at the end of Genesis 1, we read that there was only... Uh, I've given you every green herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, everything that creeps on the earth, which is life, I've given green herb for food. And it was so. Originally vegetarian, Right? It wasn't until after even the flood that God said to humanity, everything moving that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things. In my capacity as worldwide director, I go to other countries, go to Scotland a little bit, and every now and again I have haggis, and believe me, that thing is all things, right? <laughs> <clears throat> but we were originally vegetarian, so how do you fit carnivorous activity into the fossil record? How do you fit thorns and thistles into the fossil record? There are fossilized thorny plants in the fossil record that are supposed to be hundreds of millions of years old in the fossil record. But folks, it's, it's not until sin comes in the world that thorns and thistles are a consequence of sin. Genesis 3.18. Death is a result of man's actions of sin. If you believe in millions of years, and let me just say this, it doesn't matter, okay, I want to say this gently, but I want to ask you to consider about it. Let me put a case to you. 
that it doesn't matter what you call it, whether you call it day, age, framework, hypothesis, gap theory, progressive creation, any of the other new views that are, that are, that are coming into place, um, and, and no matter what wonderful, incredible theologian has put them forth, every single one of those old earth allowances has one thing in common and only one thing in common, and that is the allowance for death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, carnivorous activity, thorns and thistles before Adam and Eve and before the fall. You have to put the consequences before the cause. It's not exegetically logical. And you have to say, when God said very good, he really meant it this way. And I don't want to go in an area where I'm going to question the character of God. You can't have two opposing truths at the same time. And it's not just human death that is a result of sin because Paul tells us very clearly in Romans 8 and we see that in even Romans 3, God cursed the very ground as a result of mankind's sin. The whole earth, the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. In Colossians 1, we're told that in Jesus, all things are to be restored, things in heaven and things on earth, all things. What's he going to restore it back to in the new heaven and earth? Is he going to restore it back to having animal death and thorns and thistles and carnivorous activity and suffering and bloodshed and... No, he's not. See, when we understand the consequences of sin, we can understand why there is death and suffering in the world, why there are hurricanes, why there are tsunamis, and we can truly understand the Grand Canyon. We look at this and we go, yep, I understand what this is. This is a consequence of God's wrath on humankind's sin. I know we sit there and we look at it and it's beautiful, and it is beautiful, but don't forget, it's a, it's a record of the wrath of God on sin. And he's coming back to judge another day. And this time, it doesn't matter whether there's going to be a knock to, to hide in because he's not going to be judging by water. He's going to be judging by fire. Folks, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? See, you don't even need millions of years. Mount St. Helens. Um, it was uh, a massive volcanic explosion. Uh, and... Thousands of individual layers were laid down in hours and days showing it doesn't take millions of years for, uh, for sedimentation and canyon formation. Petrification doesn't take millions of years. It just takes the right processes. Did you know that? That's actually not a picture of my brother. <laughs> but... Um, uh, it was sitting on a, on a table in New Zealand. It was buried in volcanic ash. They came back a few years later and it was petrified. This is why we've got to get the history right, right? You, what I'm saying is you don't even need millions of years. You don't need it. There are processes that explain these things, catastrophic processes that explain these things all the time, and I can think of one massive catast catastrophe in the Bible that explains a lot of what we see in the world. And, and Dr. Morton's going to be, Mortensen's going to be speaking more about that tomorrow night, the flood and, and all of those issues. You've got to come. It's such an essential issue. You've got to come and hear Dr. Mortensen tomorrow night. Absolutely essential. Okay, so um, with the couple of minutes, uh, I, I just want to finish. I want to show you a, a video that I wasn't able to show in the first, first session because it comes down to our starting point. Are you going to stand on the Word of God or are you going to be swayed by what humanists are saying? But I want to ask the, the, the humanists and the secularists and, and those who aren't willing to stand on the truth of the history and the word of God, I, I want to ask them, are you willing up to, give, to give up your starting point when the evidence goes against you? All right? 
Because I constantly see the evidence confirming the history that is in the Word of God. What if somebody found a dinosaur bone that was supposedly 60-odd million years old and it had soft tissue and blood vessels in it? Now, those who are here in Dr. Mortensen's dinosaur talk just previously saw that, but I want to show you the video. When she picked up a small piece to stop the reaction by putting it in water, it stretched and it sproinged and it moved all over the place. So we knew we had something pretty unusual. It appears to be soft tissue. When they look at neighboring parts of the bone, they're even more surprised. Out popped the blood vessels and they were pretty incredible. And I said, I don't believe it, that's not possible. We need to do it again. And again, it's one of those just goosebump-inducing scientific moments, that's all I can say. And I, they don't really happen very often. Blood vessels should not exist in fossilized bone. Many scientists believe organic molecules can't last more than 100,000 years. Yet Schweitzer's bone is 68 million years old. I think the presence of soft tissues and cells indicates there's a process going on that we didn't have a clue about. So I think it means that we have to kind of rethink the whole chemical process of making a bone turn into a fossil. What about it's not that old? You see, we have answers is what I'm saying. I'm, I don't, I, that doesn't surprise me. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised when I see the world doing bad things. I'm not surprised because the Bible tells me it's going to. I'm not surprised because the Bible gives us answers. And I want to ask you, are you able to use the Word of God to deliver these answers? Yes, there's some extra things that we need to know about in relation to some of the sciences and those sorts of things. That's why we're here. We want to make sure that you're not intimidated by it. And we want you to make sure that you're, you're not. And so... Just know that we've got to stand on God's word. And if we stand on God's word, we've got, we've got a foundational history for everything. If we allow man's word to come in, you know, get rid of whatever baby you don't want, redefine marriage however you want, it doesn't matter. If you allow the foundational history in God's word to crack, folks, everything else is going to crumble. There is a world war going on, and the war is against the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to stand firm on the word of God and point people to the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're here. Please sign up for our newsletter. It's out there. Please think about getting our magazine. It comes every three months. Most popular creation-based magazine in the world. It's got a wonderful kids section. Okay. And uh, 30 issues of Kids Answers have gone out. Just incredible. Um, and so kids, tell your mum and dad you want to collect them. And uh, we've, uh, every, every year of subscription you get, by the way, we'll give you a free DVD out there. There's also um, different, uh, different uh, discounts for the books, depending on how many you buy. Books and DVDs, by the way, whatever selection you like. And uh, the more you buy, the more you save. We want you to be able to get answers, and that's why we discount everything. My book's out there, but look, if, if there's one book, uh, one book or one set of books that I want every single parent to, to have in their library, it's these answers books. There's four of them. They answer over 133 different questions of our day in the this issue. Please just don't let us take an answers book home. These are really, really important books and they're in DVD form. We've got others there as well as Terry's uh, DVDs, my DVDs, other people's, other scientists' DVDs out there. And uh, I want to leave you with this one statement that is, I don't do this, folks. I don't do this that you'll become creationist, even young earth creationist. I do this because I'm passionate about the authority of the Word of God. It's God
God's word, not ours. We're not to reinterpret it any other way that we want to. We're to take his word, understand his word as he's given it to us and point solidly to the most important thing. We give answers in Genesis so that we might point to the one true living answer in Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your saviour? Thank you.